Are you feeling limitless? I hope so. And if you're not, we're going to help because we're starting a new segment called Ask RJ, where each week I'm going to be speaking with one of you, our listeners, on an episode of No Limits, answering your career questions. This is something that I'm always doing for friends, for people around the office, for my family. So I thought, let's make it the No Limits family. Let's do this. For a chance to ask me your questions on an episode of No Limits, send us an email to no limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. Again, that's no limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. And we're going to reach out to you and we're going to set it up and make it happen. All right, now here's this week's episode. Do I always feel a little bit like an outsider? And the answer is yes, but that doesn't mean that I don't belong. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, The Art of the Best Seller. If you want to tell your story, you go to her. So how did Jennifer Rudolph Walsh go from being kicked out of high school to selling her first company at just 33 years old and working with Oprah, Sophia Bush, and Alicia Keys? You're about to find out. Jennifer Rudolph Walsh, welcome to No Limits. Great to be here. I'm thrilled to have you here. Uh, really interested in digging into a lot of different components of what you've done because you're what's known as an intrapreneur. That's right. You built something from inside of a company, yes, a passion but, project. Yes, yes. I've actually done both. I've actually built my own company and then eventually sold it. And now I think I'm much more of an intrapreneur than an entrepreneur, although both are incredibly exciting things to be. I feel like it's, it, it's great because you have the safety net. Of the job right. in some respects. But it's also a safety net, but it's also constraints. So there's a fantastic yes. French kind of art called bricolage, which mm. means um, – which is about artistic expression within extreme limits. And I think that there's an art to that, and that's what the entrepreneur figures out how to do. Uh, the entrepreneur has a different thing, almost no boundaries, no limits, which has its own set of, of, of excitements but also challenges and obstacles. So I – I just think instead of either or, you can be and this too. Did so. you come here prepared with that bricolage? No. Because no, like, I haven't thought of that. It in says 10 years. no limits all over the wall. Oh, right I haven't here, thought so of that. No, 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 I haven't thought about that in ten years. I don't know what made me think of that. I love it. Okay, so your background. First of all, you run at WME, the literary part of WME. So all the books that come out of it, all the conferences that come out of it, all the lectures that come out of it, with all of the big name clients you've worked with, everyone from Ariana Huffington to Sheryl Sandberg to Oprah Winfrey, on their books, on their speaking, on all of that stuff. On their conferences, all of it. And they're all bestsellers. And they're all best, most amazing human beings. That And that's the most important yeah, part, right? completely. You've also now launched the Together Tour, so the likes of Sophia Bush, Alicia Keys. But I want to start at the beginning of where you okay, came from. Great. So as a kid. Okay. Did you, did you even know what an agency was at the no time? No idea. No idea. So I think that, you know, since the Together Tour is a lot about finding your purpose and using your life story to find, find your purpose because the, the breadcrumbs, the clues are in there. I'm going to start with my clues because he asked me when I was a kid, what was I good at? And what I was really good at is hearing people's stories and finding the universal truths in them and then sharing them with other people. 
Now, I didn't feel like this was a good thing to be good at. It wasn't like I was proud of it. I would have much preferred to play the piano or to be really good at math. But what I had was this really unbelievably strong connection to true storytelling and a desire to share it. And when did you realize that? How old well, were you? I mean, I, I think I realized it pretty young, like middle, like grade school. Really? But the first time somebody ever like kind of made me realize that it was special was, you know, a teacher who wasn't even actually praising me for it. But I was in the middle of a conversation with somebody and the teacher had asked me to stop. I was like in seventh grade. And, and I said, no, 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 I just, I need a minute. It's really important. And she <laughs> overheard me saying, you just really need to keep a journal and tell your mom how you're feeling about this. And she said, oh, I heard about you. I heard you have a famous way with words but it's not going to work with me. And all I heard was, I have a way with words? <laughs> like, what? So even though she was reprimanding yeah, totally. me, I kind of felt like she was putting a, you know, like crowning me with something. And that, by the way, has to be to, to have that trait, to hear the best in whatever someone is saying to you, to like kind of wash away the worst. Would you say that that's your thing? I, I mean, when you say wash away the worst, I mean, I don't know how deep we want to get in this conversation, but I can hear any truth. And so that includes hard truths. Like I'm not looking for people to just tell me the good stories. Right. So what I can what I what I can hear is any truth is what I would say. In other words, if it's if it's bull, I'm going to call bull or I'm going to have no interest. But it's not going to hinder you. Like yeah, this yeah, teacher yeah. saying this to you didn't shut you down. No, I was like the opposite. I was like I'm famous for something. <laughs> <laughs> and I went through puberty at 10 years old and I had like a size D boobs in 6th grade. <laughs> so I was really happy to hear I was famous for something besides having been the first girl in the entire Waverly Park Middle School to go through go through puberty. We could dedicate an entire <laughs> podcast by the way to that topic of what what, you know, puberty and wh- when you go through it, how that impacts the rest of your life. So you're you're in seventh grade, you're being told that you are good at hearing people's truths, hearing their stories, and then giving advice back yeah. and telling them yeah. sort of here's a good idea. What were you thinking at the time you would do with that if you had I any had no ambition? idea. I, I had no idea exactly. I thought I should be a lawyer because hmm. my dad was a lawyer and you know, the biggest compliment you get in those days as a, you know, growing up in the 70s and early 80s, Jewish girl on the Upper West Side was, Jen, you have the gift of the gab. So I was like, okay, gift of the gab. Like, what do you do with that? I'm going to be a litigator. I, I might as well be a litigator. God knows I can argue my way out of anything. So I guess in the kind of back of my head, I thought that's what, what I would do. And then I got to college. You went to school in Ohio. Yeah, I went to Kenyon, where, where my son is right now. Actually. Was that, that's awesome. Was that for you, was it... Come, growing up in New York and then going to Ohio, how did you perceive it was that? Bananas. Was it, you just wanted to get away from no, New York? I just, or? No, I, I was a terrible student. I was kicked out of high school in the middle of high school for non-attendance. I was not one of those, as I'm sure you were looking at you. I'm sure you were the nose in the book, straight A, straight A student. Yes, she's shaking her head no, but her eyes are saying yes. Um, I was the opposite. I mean, I was in the back of the bus, probably smoking a cigarette. I'm sorry if my kids hear this. Um, really just talking to people about their life stories and really obsessed with that. And whenever I could, I'd be watching soap operas and hearing about those stories and talking to everybody I could about what I saw in General Hospital or all my children. I was not I was not kind of one of those ambitious, you know, looking to get ahead people. And frankly, the only reason I got into Kenyan is because a teacher wrote a letter about the fact that I really had something special, but that my grades and my and my test scores didn't reflect that. And it was back in the days, 1985, where you could take a chance on somebody. And my teacher asked Kenyon to do that, and they did, and it completely changed my life. What changed when you got well, there? Well, I'll tell you. I got there, and I took a an English literature class, and 
to be honest with you, I didn't even know that authors were alive. Like any author I'd ever read in my life was like a dead old white guy. And I get there and suddenly I'm reading I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings and, you know, Toni Morrison. And I, I'm just blown away by contemporary women's voices in fiction. I'm just like, what is this? And I remember about three weeks into my freshman year, my literature teacher said, oh, Maya Angelou is speaking in Columbus. If you want to go, you know, we're going to take a few, a few cars. And I was like, wait, you can listen to an author speak? And I mean, I didn't know then that most authors would actually pay you to listen to them speak. <laughs> but I got into the back of this white car and we drove to, to Columbus, Ohio, and we poured into this auditorium. And there was Maya Angelou. I mean, it's a bit like your first rock concert being, oh, Bruce Springsteen. I mean, it was bananas. And she, she read from her memoir. And even though the details of her life were nothing like mine, but I literally heard my life story being read. Mm. And I'm blown away and I'm crying and I'm... I'm holding hands with the lady next to me, you know, which wouldn't have been weird, but I didn't come with that woman. I didn't know that woman. Every single person in the entire auditorium had like a collective heartbeat. And right then I knew I wanted to stay as close to this as possible. I didn't know what this meant, but I just thought, oh, I just got to do anything I can to be near this. And so that was the day law school died. Wow. Yeah. I think your point about I want to be as close to this as possible, it's a very... I have felt that way without knowing what the path forward totally, is. Totally, totally. How did you figure out what the path well, forward is? it's a process, was? right? And I still don't have the full, you know, I'm still following the unfolding, you know. And But I would say that once you get what I would call a breadcrumb or another way to look at it is your life is calling you. Like your your calling is calling. And And how does it feel? I think it feels differently for everybody. But for me, it feels like all of a sudden time just expands and you just you have no sense of how long you've been there or how long you've been doing it. And instead of feeling depleted by it, you feel incredibly inspired. And afterwards, you can't stop talking about it. And when you talk about it, people are like, wow, you know, you're pretty jacked up about this. And it's contagious and you can feel that. And so to me, that's a, what I call a breadcrumb, a breadcrumb to purpose. And I saw that and I knew early on that that meant something to me. And so, you know, my first immediate step at college was to start working at the Kenyon Review as an intern, just because that was a literary magazine where I could be close to writers telling their more, most authentic truths. And then I eventually applied for an internship at a literary agency. I didn't know what agents did, but it was the word literary that got me. And what do they do? Excellent question. So what literary agents do is, multi- is a multitude of things. But the first thing is they're the first line reader. In many cases, literally the first person that the author shares their work with. So starting there, that is like such a sacred responsibility. So that starts with that, the front line reader. And, then, and if they say no. Right. Well, if, if the literary agent says no, then you have to find the right reader. And there is the right reader for everybody. So you believe that every single book out there has a home. I believe that. I believe that. That's encouraging to yeah. anyone who's who's an author. No, that's the thing. Writers rewrite. So if somebody feels like I've written it, nobody wants it, and I'm done with it, then then okay, well then that's the end of their journey. But my father, who has been writing since college, just had his first novel published at 78 years old. It's an absolutely beautiful story that he has been crafting pretty much his whole life, and Random House just published it. And um, so I believe that writers rewrite, and if you do that, then eventually you're going to find the the right form. But so first thing a literary agent does is is find its match. Yes, I am the right literary agent for you. I see how to edit this. I see where to publish this. I see what to do for this. And then we sell the book domestically to a, to a U.S. publisher, generally through an auction, which is super fun. 
And then once the book is, is found a publisher, we do the contract. And then we sell it individually in every single country in the world. We sell magazine rights. We sell audio rights. And then we also sell movie rights and we sell TV rights. And if we're lucky, then there's lectures that come from the books and, and, other, and other ancillary things, podcasts like what you're doing. So we're sort of that person that runs the business so that the author can spend the time actually writing. So you're doing your first internship yeah. in that world. Yes. And you're seeing how all of it plays out. And right. what do you think of it? I'm just thinking, oh, my God, this is amazing. I mean, because there's the lawyer part, too, right, where you're sort of negotiating contracts, even though you're not really a lawyer, but you have enough of a, of a knowledge of the boilerplates. So I loved that I was able to use my advocacy as well as my passion for storytelling. And I just thought this is amazing. And I actually I had a great job working for a working mom. Uh, her name is Virginia Barber. And um she passed away last summer. She's extraordinary. She, and she would literally at 3 o'clock in the afternoon go upstairs, put a chicken in the oven, come back downstairs. We worked in the, in the ground floor of her townhouse. And it was an excellent opportunity for me to see how you can make it all work, you know? Absolutely. She was amazing. That's so cool. And she wore every hat all the time. She didn't bring her work self to the work and her home self to home. She just was her whole self the whole time. And I loved that because I, I didn't think I'd be good with an office personality. <laughs> just somehow. I just didn't think that would work for me. So you go from there to where? Well, actually, I stayed there. And I ultimately, I started as an intern. And she hired me to work full time when I graduated. So my whole senior year, I worked from my dorm room. And then I graduated on a Saturday, started to work for her Monday. And then I think eight or 10 years later, I bought the company from her. And then I grew it. It was just the three of us, the two of us and one other person when I bought it. But then I grew it to nine people. And then I sold it to William Morris. And that was – so when I was – you know, that was, I guess, uh, in 2000. So how, how old were you, if you don't mind my asking, I don't mind at all. I'm it. totally transparent about age. Um, I was 33. And how old were you when you bought it? I was 27. Buying it at 27 years old from the woman who started it. Yeah. What, how did that go it was, down? It was not something I was looking for. I always say greatness is something that you either go after or is thrust upon you while you're in the bathroom. Like, I'm a bathroom person. <laughs> I I'm a just, shower person. I, I, just, I think of so many ideas yeah, in the shower. I was just sitting, in, you know, like minding my own business as usual. And she came to me. We were very close friends. And... Um, and she said, my husband wants to retire and he wants me to sell the agency in something called an owner-financed buyout. I was like, okay, I don't have any money though. And she said, well, I was just had given birth to my first child. And she said, um, no, no, no. An owner-financed finance buyout means that you use the money from the company to pay me. And I was like, well, that sounds awesome. So we made a five-year deal and I didn't even have a lawyer and I didn't even know – that I actually had to pay taxes on the money that I was <laughs> receiving before I paid her. So it was the worst deal ever. For those years, I couldn't even – I mean, I I was so – my husband and I lived so close to the vest, and uh, it was hard, but it was amazing. And then – You would do it again. Oh, you know, in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. I loved it. And I loved being on our on my own, and I loved – we moved to Fifth Avenue out of her townhouse to 101 Fifth Avenue, and we grew the business to nine people, and I really – began my belief that a collective of people should represent any one individual. And mm -hmm. in the book business, that's rare. Usually it's just one person who does all everything for the, for the author. But I started to think that you should have one person who's an expert at every single thing, one person who does foreign rights, one person who does audio rights, one person who does movie rights, one person who does TV rights. And so I really began this kind of team effort towards author representation. 
And I think it really had a great effect on people because our books kept working and working and people were coming and they weren't going. And this is at a time when things are starting, at least in the book business, to not work. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, this is like, you know, straight through the 90s. We were just growing and growing and growing prodigiously. And it was a great feeling. But around 2000, I started to realize that there was going to be a consolidation of power and distribution was going to become the most important thing. And I realized that as a small independent agent, I couldn't really advocate for my clients as powerfully as I wanted to in Hollywood and internationally. And so that's when I sold my company to William Morris and um, and joined the board there at 33, the first woman ever and the youngest person in the history of William Morris, which is a 100-year-old company. What was that like? <laughs> Kooky. It's like Kabuki <laughs> theater, really. It's just... Being the outsider, I, I don't. you don't seem like the kind of person who would ever be stressed out by being no, the outsider. No, I didn't care about being the outsider, but it is funny the things that I was worried about, like – my friend said to me, they're going to tell you you can't wear jeans. And this was in, the, in 2000 when jeans weren't cool. But I've always – Right. You're looking at me so you know I'm in jeans and I have lots of big curly hair. And, you know, the sort of style at that time was straightened, straightened, straightened hair and, you know, black sort of Prada power suits. And so – and I was still at that age young enough to wear T-shirts that had slogans on it like the future is female <laughs> <laughs> or save the drama for your mama. So, did you um, actually have a shirt that said "Save the Drama"? For oh, your I, mama? and I used to wear it to the board meetings all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they loved that. I'm sure they did not know exactly what to make of it, but, um, but you know, I brought my whole self. Yeah. Right? So I hear that so much of the time. I mean, the the people who are truly playing at the top of their game and happy and fulfilled by all of it, it's about that authenticity. That's like the perfect clicking of everything. Completely. And again, you know, I, I think a lot about belonging. Um, do I always feel a little bit like an outsider? And the answer is yes, but that doesn't mean that I don't belong. You know, I speak the language of the heart. I talk about the universe. I believe in astrology. And so half the time I feel like people were rolling their eyes and the other half they were coming to me and saying, tell me again about that. How does that work? And so it's not like I felt or have ever felt, frankly, that I'm in my tribe, mm-hmm. but I feel like I belong because I'm accepted in the ways that I that I don't belong. Hmm. That's I'm trying to think about that idea. So being an outsider but feeling belonging, do you think that that is a a choice that you are making or do you think that it's something about the way that the communities that you're choosing appreciate you? I think this is one of those things where again it's not either or it's both and, but mm-hmm. I, what I'll say is that the choice that I've made is to be myself. So and that's that's been the great joy of my life. But also that's been heartbreaking at times, you know. Um, Tell me about that. Well, you know, I'm very passionate and I take things very personally. And so when somebody disagrees with me in business, it can a lot of times feel like they're disagreeing with me as a human being. And I think that one of the one of the challenges I've had to kind of grow through, especially through my 40s, is to take things a little less personally and to charge a little less when someone says no. In other words, everything doesn't have to go to the mattresses, so to speak. And there have been times in the boardroom where I was fighting for something where I felt it was right. I mean, if you put it up on a on a bulletin board, you'd agree that I was on the side of right. But the way that I handled it or the way that I personalized it made it so that people would rather not engage with me as opposed to having a healthy debate about what's the best thing to do. And I think that what I had to come to realize is that everybody in that room 
um, was just as good as I was. Mm. And they cared just as much as I did. And I didn't get to be the one that cared the most. I didn't get to be the goodest person. The hardest the working. The hardest working. I didn't. That was something that was a position that I had held myself up as. And I think part of it is that, you know, as women, the best defense against sexism is excellence, you know. And so I think I had put myself in an armor that was really about exactly what you said, the hardest working, the person who cares the most, the person that's willing to give the most. And it became somewhat of a barrier for me in dealing with people who also were working their hardest. They just had a different a different way of going about it. How did you change your behaviors? What I don't know if you can take us inside, but in, in a very specific sense, are there any things that you did differently outside of, you know, you, you put your idea on the table and the room disagrees with you or a number of people in the room disagrees with you? How do you handle that differently now than such 10 years question. ago? It's such a good question. Well, for one thing, I just want to add one extra strange thing, which is that oftentimes not only was I the only woman in the board, but I was the only one in New York. So I'm on the television set and everybody else is in the room. And they're all in L.A.? All in L.A. You know, I would go a lot to the meetings, but then sometimes I just couldn't. I have three kids. And so I'd have to be on the television. And I don't know if you've ever had a, tele- a meeting where everybody's in a room and you're on the television – But you can't listen to the asides. You can't make a joke. You can't lighten the mood. So every time you need to get into the conversation, you have to literally like catapult yourself in. And I think that um, that just amplified what was already true of me. Yes. Which is that, you know, I would say things like, I couldn't disagree with you more. Like I literally as a human being could not disagree with you more. And I just didn't leave anything. And then all the glances happen on the other side of this. Yeah. And I didn't leave any place. I didn't leave a door. I didn't leave any place to go. And so how I do things differently now than I did 10 years ago, or frankly, to be honest with you, Rebecca, even three years ago, is that I really breathe into it and I remember that every single person um, is doing the best they can. I call it MRI, Most Respectful Interpretation. And I, re- I remind myself of that. So every single person is doing the best they can. Every single person wants the same things, the best for themselves, the best for, them th- for their families, the best for this company, the best for this community, the best for this world. And I just say, that's the given. And now what? And so then I'm able to sort of ask questions instead of telling people the answers. and To help bring them in yeah, the direction you need yeah. them to come in. Or to in. understand why not. Why yeah. not? Yeah. What part's not working about this? Is there any part that does work for you? Is there something we can do about that? And then at the end of the day, I think I, I invest more now in the process like what I call a clean process versus a dirty process where someone's just manipulating you into an answer or into an agreement. I care no more now about a clean process than I do about the outcome. I don't know. That's kind of like what I'm loving about 50. It's like I'm just a little detached from the outcome. I'm just going to I'm going to do my best. I'm going to put my whole heart into it. And I'm going to remember that everybody else is putting their whole heart into it also. And then, uh, you know, where we end up is where we end up for then. It's not the it's not the final thing. You know, it's like, and then the next right decision and the next right decision. Well, you understand truly what the long game means at oh, 50 as show. opposed to. Oh, show. Yeah. I wanted to win every, every battle. I see that all the time in my life, in my career, where early on it was like, wait, why am I not getting this opportunity? I have worked harder than anyone else. I should Do or get die. this thing Do right or now. Die. Do or die. And you start to recognize that. Yes, you have to stand up for yourself. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't and you shouldn't I'm not raise saying, your hand. I'm not saying that you shouldn't self-advocate. Go for it. But you also start to realize that ideally it is a long road ahead. 
and that each thing is a building block. And there are certain circumstances under which you do have to sort of realize you cut your losses and you realize this isn't the right environment for me to progress or grow. But there are other environments where if everyone at the table is 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 good to you, cares about you, wants you to be successful, you have to sort of trust some of that. Trust the universe. Trust the universe. Yeah. That's what I would say. You have great sta- um, sayings and isms. Do uh, yeah. you come up with these? I like- have a million of them. And actually, about about five years ago, my whole office put together a jar on my desk, <laughs> which actually says, together we rise on it, which is the, where together the tour came from, and which we'll talk about in a little bit. But And in it is all the things I've said to everybody throughout you know throughout the years. So there's like a thousand of them in there. I, I don't remember do them. Do they just come I out of your them. mouth? Yeah, or do you I have think no about- idea. I never think about them. Um, I just want to say that I have three little tips in that in that vein of what you're saying, which is, number one, of course, do the job 100%. I mean, that goes without saying. If you're listening to this podcast, that's probably what you're already doing. Like, excellence, excellence, excellence. But the other two that I add to that is, whenever possible, make somebody else look good. And I mean mm-hmm. literally pass the ball on the five-yard line. I do it all the time. I always have. Reflected glory is a wonderful thing. And over time, it will serve you better than being the person to make that to make that score. So whenever possible, make somebody else look good. And the third thing is, honestly and truly, don't give a second thought to who gets credit for it. It's really, ideas are easy. It's all about execution. And teamwork is my religion. I have literally, you know, the strength of the, of the wolf is the pack. And the strength of the pack is the wolf. And I believe that to my core. And so I never worry about get, who gets credit. And it's amazing how when you're that person, people really want you on your t- on their team. Mm. Interesting. I'm now 35, so a number of the women that I know are somewhere in that sort of mid to higher level of management in the world of business. And that idea of reflected glory, I, I hear from a no- number of friends, they send the all the ideas, they do all the heavy lifting, and they send it to somebody, whomever it is. And then that person is consistently taking credit for it and they're stuck because whoever that whatever that person is who's right above them, that person is never gonna give them the credit for the work that I understand. Done. First of all, it's a balance, right? I mean, I would never if I had one avenue and it was the only <laughs> right. avenue and I was passing something every single time yeah. and it was never coming These back. These are not to written me. in stone. Yes. I would I would change you know, it's a living, yeah. breathing organism. But what I would say is most of the time, and as somebody who, you know, oversees a very large organization people know where the where the, where the ideas are coming from. And they know because there's ten follow up questions. And you gotta be able to answer those. And the best team leaders Forward emails don't cut and paste them, and they and they and they you know and they let people know where the ideas are coming from because as a team leader, the best thing I can do is have a team of stars. I love that. That's you're you're filled with great advice, oh, Jennifer. Good, good, I good, love good. it. Uh, do you go by Jennifer or do you go by Jenny? In life? No, definitely not Jenny. You can call me Jen or Jennifer. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm not a Jenny. Okay, so you're inside of William Morris. Right. They've now bought your company. Yes. They buy Endeavor as well. No, well, I guess they so seven or they merge. Seven years into that, uh, into that, or seven or eight years uh, into that process, we merge with Endeavor. Okay, got it. So you merge with Endeavor, and you're inside of this company. You're running this group that's creating and generating, not creating, but generating more best-selling novels, best-selling books than any other. That's right. We are the number one content provider to every major publisher in the world, and we represent 66% of the New York Times bestseller list. Okay, so you're playing at the top of your game. The company is playing at the top of its game, 
and you get to this point and you decide what? Well, I mean, again, it wasn't like a crossroads in the way that you're thinking about it. It's more of an evolution. So I had always planned all of the retreats for William Morris. And when we merged with Endeavor, um, Ari Emanuel, our CEO, was also crazy about retreats and TED Talks. And we just shared this incredible curiosity and hunger for ideas. And so um, he really wanted to sort of amp up our retreats as opposed to what we'd always had, which is, you know, we'd have a subject expert talking about teamwork or talking about hard work or talking about getting through when you're stuck. He was like, well, let's have a neuroscientist. Let's have this person. Let's have that person. And so our retreats became these amazing, like, brain camps. And we would have meditation experts from India, and we would have Elon Musk and, you know, Sheryl Sandberg. And it was just extraordinary the amount. Do you have to pay those people to come, or do they come because they're already <laughs> they just, represented? They, most of them just came, because not only because they represented, <laughs> but also because that's a room full of influencers like nobody's business. Yeah, right. So it was a, it's a good room to be in front of. And, um, and, and we are all passionate builders of influence, so you want to be around those people. So... I just loved planning those retreats more than anything, co- you know, co-planning them with, with, with Ari and the chief communications uh, person at our company is a guy named Christian Muirhead, and he had the same passion. And we would all year long be sending articles and, and just inviting people higher and higher, Al Gore, you know, talking about failure. I mean, it's just, it was just amazing, people off their topics. And... Um, But, you know, there was this sort of little, I guess, you know, this little immigrant child in me that just wanted everybody to feel that, everybody to hear that. I wanted to take the wisdom from the smallest rooms possible. And I wanted to literally shine the light as far and wide as possible. And I just couldn't, I couldn't lose it. I couldn't lose that feeling. I mean, people just love exclusive, exclusive, exclusive. And I don't know, I'm allergic to it. I just like inclusive. I don't, I've been to all the fortunes, women's most powerful conference. I've been to the White House. I've been to these extraordinary places where thought leaders that we'll be reading about in 100 years are talking to me knee to knee. And even though my heart is literally about to explode with pride and joy and gratitude, at the same time, all I want is for everybody to have access. And so it began to sort of gnaw on me. How would I democratize the conference business? How would I make it so that every single person has an invitation, you know, and that you don't have to be qualified. You don't have to wear a name tag and feel like you have to have, you know, your bona fides to be there. Because even though I have those, I I feel like when I'm at my most heartfelt, like centered place, I don't even think about those things. Mm-hmm. And plus, there's so many rooms that are doing that so good. Like, you know, Fortunes is rocking that. Like, they don't – nobody needs help with another women's leadership conference or an entrepreneurial conference. Like, that's covered. And so I started to think about what would it feel like if we just gathered around storytelling and the incredible power of storytelling to connect us and to heal us and to elevate us. And so, you know, really that was the beginning of my conference, my conference business. And uh, our desire to be in that business really came from the fact that it's a great place to sell books. I mean, there's a real, there's a real financial argument around why conferences are good for book business. Because the person who comes and speaks to the audience can then sell books to totally, the audience. Totally. And so we, you had this idea three, four years ago it was yeah, coming I would say together? F- yeah, four, four years ago. And um, I decided to start super small and take Oprah Winfrey around the country. So small. <laughs> Itty bitty. Yeah. So we saw like over a quarter of a million people over a 10-week period of time. And it was by far the highlight of my entire career and, and close to – other than my children being born, close to the highlight of my life. Wow. Because Oprah really – 
um, she's my spiritual godmother. I mean, I, she raised me as a you know a, a girl whose mom was working full time, and my siblings were already at college. I mean, I watched her show every single day. She taught me everything about you know what's the soul to really the right way to to wipe yourself. I mean, there was nothing that I didn't learn on that show. It's crazy. I, I mean, I just I don't think I'd be who I was without her. I mean, she gave me the emotional scaffolding that is my inner life. And when I had the great opportunity to work with her, um, all I wanted to do was regather the Oprah Winfrey show tribe. Mm-hmm. And we did that. And it was amazing. It was called the Life You Want Tour. But really, it was like the Life I Want Tour. Because you gave yourself that life totally. by being a part of I the manifested whole thing. It. I manifested it. It was pure magic. And um, I wanted to stay on the road forever. But as you could imagine, she had a life to get back to and a studio to run and movies to make. And... The other thing that I started to realize was that it was so electric in the room, but then we would go home and all the commitments we'd made to each other were kind of lost. Mm. So I started to think, well, what would it be like if we could somehow stay together and act together and grow together in between these events? And so that was what I would call sort of another you know, breadcrumb of the creation of the Together Tour. So from there, I did a few others that were amazing. Ariana Huffington, Cosmos, Fun, Fearless Careers for Young Women. Um, But I kept feeling like the only way to keep the ticket price really low was to not be involved with a brand that actually had a big machine to fill. And there was no problem with that, but it was a different goal than what I wanted. So you created the Together Tour. Yes. You're charging $25 a person. Yes. We eliminated the two most difficult obstacles for most people, time and money. So our tickets start at $25, and we have one evening, a work night for three hours. So this is our second year. Last year, we saw 15,000 people. It was unreal. I mean, what our audience has told us, and the great part of year two is that it's based on the wisdom that we heard, which is that people felt completely alive and completely uh, inspired to affect change in their life based on uncovering their unique purpose connecting to a community that supports them, and then getting over the bridge of bravery into action. So we are. We're in Portland on September 18th, Seattle on the 21st, San Jose on uh, September 26th, Phoenix on September 28th, Austin on uh, October 3rd, D.C. on October 12th, Nashville on October 17th, Minneapolis on October 19th, Chicago on October 24th, Philly on the 26th, and then we're actually um, opening Ted Women in, in New Orleans on the 3rd. Congratulations. Thank you. So please visit us at TogetherLive.com where you'll hear all of our information, and you'll see we have three amazing speakers who come to all 10 of our cities. Our co-founder, Glennon Doyle, her beautiful, amazing gold medal wife, Abby Wambach, and Lovey Ajayi, and they're at all 10 stops along with me, who's the MC. And then at each place, we have celebrity guests and special thought leader guests joining us along the way. So Sophia Bush, Connie Britton, Alexis Jones, uh, Elizabeth Lesser. It's going to be amazing. So I hope that your listeners can come and join us along the road. Amazing. (laughs) When you look back on all of this, what's been the toughest lesson you've had to learn? The toughest lesson that I have to learn, has had to learn, is that it matters how you do things. In other words, the most important thing for me was always why. And since I was always kind of harkens back to what we were saying earlier, since I was coming from a good place, I always felt like all's well that ends well. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. And so 
I've had to learn the hard way that a process has to be followed and everybody doesn't move at the same speed and everybody doesn't have the same vision for it. And so I've had to learn to sort of breathe a lot and make sure that I have consensus. All these things that when I was your age, I thought were bull****. I mean, I was like, I don't need those things because I'm just going to get there and I'm going to drag everybody else with me if I have to. And they'll be happy and they'll say thank you when they get there. They don't say thank you when they get there. They feel like they've been dragged somewhere and people don't like that. So what do you do then? How do you balance that idea with if you have a really big ambition and other people just aren't getting on board with it, do you go no, somewhere you have else to, to You have to find it? a different opening. I mean, I've been very lucky at WME because they are tremendously supportive of, of people's passions and their ideas. And as long as you can figure out a business plan that's reasonable, they're going to get behind you. So I, I have the greatest partners alive when it comes to that. But I think that what I have had to find is that people's passions have to be aligned. In other <laughs> words, it doesn't mean we don't do hard things. We do hard things all the time. But we have to be doing everything sort of you know, as a family. And we have to all agree to a set of rules and processes, which for us just means you know, no bull. You know, we always lead with our heart. It's okay to be scared. It's okay to have a hard, a hard row. But we really just kind of always stay in the room and work it out till we get to the other side. Given the degree of positivity that it seems like you want to lead with, that you want to inject into whatever it is that you're doing, whatever group you're with, how do you say no to things? I have no problem saying no to things. And I'll tell you exactly how. Because once you define your purpose, which is something that we do during our event, so there's speakers and then there's a few conversations between best friends talking about how they support each other. And then we have three exercises we do during the course of the evening. And you will leave with a personal purpose statement. And, you know, I think purpose is one of those things that a lot of people think are for other people. Oh, famous people have purpose or, you know, gymnasts have purpose. Purpose is for every single person who has breath in their body. And when you define your purpose – then you deprioritize anything that doesn't serve that purpose. And for me, my purpose um, is to shine the light forward so others feel less alone, connected, elevated, and healed. And so if anybody is asking me something that does not serve that purpose, the answer is most likely going to be no. But even if it's not no, it's going to be not now. Mm -hmm. And so to me, as a working mom especially, defining my purpose actually changed my life in so many ways because when you're in purpose, you can't be overwhelmed. It doesn't make you anxious or depressed. It's the opposite. It gives you energy. It gives you strength. It gives you confidence. And so I have no issue saying no when I'm the wrong person to do something. What is the worst advice you've received along the way? Um, I think any kind of advice I've received that's about conforming has been has been terrible advice for me. I feel like I've been told throughout the years to just sort of just grin and bear it, to, you know, just go along to get along. And that advice has been has been very detrimental to me. I think the best advice I ever received is somebody who once told me that it's not what happens, it's what happens next. And how do you think of that? I think of that as how do you um, apply it? Well, I'll tell you what. I don't know if you're like a negative self-talk person, but when I was your age, and again, not to be condescending, but it's a big 15 years between us. When I was your age, if I messed something up, I would spend the next 24 hours beating myself up like crazy. And it could be anything. Something big, like I messed my friend's birthday party, like I forgot you know, my friend's birthday, <laughs> to something small, like I didn't get back to somebody or I didn't read someone's manuscript fast enough. I held myself to this incredible, um, this incredible uh, like height of excellence. And 
then if I didn't make make my 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 excellence, I would beat myself up in the craziest way. And I thought that was part of excellence. Hmm. And then when somebody once told me that that negative self-talk is actually just negative narcissism. Like it's all about you. And that really turned my stomach because I narcissism is I mean, I know it's a condition, but it's something that I really like need to steer clear of in my life. I just am literally been known to scream in people's faces. It's not about you. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I have done that. So um, as soon as somebody explained to me that the self-talk, the negative self-talk was really narcissistic, it really helped me to just let it go and just to be as forgiving to myself as I'd be to you or to a friend or to a stranger on the street. And so how I implied it's not what happens, it's what happens next is if I screw something up, I can't fix that, but I can fix the next thing I do. So mm-hmm. like a, like, almost like a basketball player who just missed a shot. Forget that. You know, right. just let it go. Go on to the next thing, you know. And so that's that's been my biggest practice with myself is self-compassion, self-forgiveness, but then let it go because the only opportunity you have to fix something is in the present and the future. The past is sealed. I love it. You're filled with wisdom. Jennifer Rudolph Welsh, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And now it's time for our weekly No Limits Entrepreneur, where we feature one of our listeners who's building something of her own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Heatha Herzog. Heatha is Chief Research Officer of H-Squared Research. She's also a consumer spending columnist at U.S. News and World Report and author of the book Black Market Billions, How Organized Retail Crime Funds Terrorists. Heatha graduated from Smith College. She went to Columbia University for graduate school in journalism. And her biggest turning point happened while she was working as a journalist covering retail and was using another analyst's research. She realized that most of the stuff she was reading needed its own dictionary to decipher. And she had a realization that other people were probably having the same thought. This led to her recognizing a white space for investment advisors who didn't have in-house research departments. So her game-changing decision? To take that idea and run with it. After realizing what's known as RIAs, their registered investment advisors, could benefit from having white label research, she created a new business model and set out to make it a reality. She's had to overcome a variety of challenges throughout, but looking back, she says she would tell herself to get her product perfect before going to market. Not only is she a complete rock star in this space, but you also see her here on ABC News. We use her all the time as an expert in our stories because she does take information and translate really complex things so that we can all understand it. And Forbes recently named her one of the most influential South Asian women in the United States. Heatha, you're awesome. Congratulations. Thanks for being our No Limits Entrepreneur this week. And we're doing one more new thing with our entrepreneurs of the week. We are asking one of their questions of the show guest. And here's her question for Jennifer Rudolph Walsh. I really like this one because it's very, very practical. So she wrote, not all of us are authors, but we write sometimes 100 emails a day, maybe more. What are three things or pieces of advice that you can give to effectively communicate a message of strength? Plus, I'm an effective leader with my bleep together in an email. Oh, you said bleep, but we're not supposed to say curse words on we this get, podcast. We, they get bleeped out. <laughs> okay, sorry, it's, guys. It's like, no, you don't have to apologize. So um, for one thing, I don't like um, formality, like what I call like f- yeah. fake formality. Yeah. It's like, don't say, dear Jennifer, if I may. Yeah. Either do it or don't, but no, if I may. I like it. And then also don't start with hope you're well. It's like, if I don't, <laughs> I don't know you. I start with hope you're well all the time. 
Because I actually do hope that people are well, but well, I won't start yeah, there anymore. I think it's Jennifer. a nice place to end. Okay. I think it's a nice place to end. So, so because just you've get already into done it? your business. Yes, you've already done your business. Got it. Now you can actually say your true, your true good tidings towards Got that it. person. So get down to business right I away. I just get right down to business okay. because anything that you say that's sort of like, hey, I hope you liked that trip to Israel. Like, just get to what you need, <laughs> and then I'll decide if I want to answer you about my my trip to Israel that you overheard me saying at a at a party. Got it. So that's what I would say is I like to start with just the actual business, and yes. I like to. Really just put myself in the headspace of the person receiving this 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 email. And so just be wary of people's time, right. of of what it takes for them to do this properly. Fear I also don't like be. when people say move to BCC to spare so-and-so's email box. Like we all know why somebody's yeah. been moved to BCC. Spare me from reading yes, that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the other thing is though, I'd say though, I only do BCC if I tell, say that someone's on BCC because- Yeah, yeah. Oh no, the 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 creepy BCC. The creepy BCC no. I absolutely hate. I hate that. I always say, don't put me on BCC because I will reply by mistake. Do not do yeah. that to me. I'm yeah. just, I'm not the person that can be trusted with that. I'm so forthcoming and transparent. So yes, agreed. No more creepy BCCs. Great question, Heatha, and congrats on being the No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week. Keep doing your thing, girl. If you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, send me your nomination to no limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of No Limits. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review. It really does help to spread the word. And you can follow along with us behind the scenes on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat at Rebecca Jarvis. And join the conversation using the hashtag No Limits. And thanks so much to the team here at ABC who makes this happen week after week. Taylor Dunn, Michelle Bancardo, Annie Osakwe, Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Hecht, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones here at ABC Radio. Have a great week, everyone. Take care. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.